Good evening, everyone. Just give us a minute to adjust our um, Britney-style mics. We're here to talk about how to deal with a rapidly changing world. Migration, international conflict, economic crisis, climate change. All those are problems which are international, and they all require international solutions. But our international institutions, the EU, NATO, the UN, were designed half a century ago or more, and they're failing. So I'm joined by two people to talk about what might replace them, how they might be made to work better, and how we might all work together to come up with some solutions to some of these incredibly large problems. Simon Anholt is an international policy advisor and recipient of the Nobel's Colloquia Prize for Economics. He did a TED Talk in Berlin in 2014, which went hugely viral. It did a million views in the fastest time ever, I think. So they tell me. Uh, Charles Clark is uh, an outspoken politician, I've got written here, uh, former education and home secretary, and the author of the highly regarded The Too Difficult Box, The Big Issues Politicians Can't Crack. What I'm going to do is just have a chat with both of them, and then there'll be uh, a long opportunity at the end for you to ask your own questions. So if any of you have got things that you want to ask, please be thinking of them now. I'm going to start with you, Charles, actually. We hear all the time this idea about you know, politics is, is broken. Politics can't fix the problems that we have. People have lost trust in politics. Is that fair? I take almost the opposite view. I think that politics is the only way to solve the problems that we have. I accept the politics is broken thesis in the sense that I think our political institutions are very, very damaged, not capable of doing what they should do. But the idea you can solve the problems that we have without going through politics, I think, is fundamentally mistaken. I think of the issues in my own lifetime, uh, since uh, I'm 65 now, in the last uh, 45 years, say, since I was a student. You go through apartheid in South Africa, colonialism in Southern Africa, military dictatorship in Latin America, uh, totalitarianism in Eastern Europe. Uh, there's a whole set of issues, I could list a lot more, where massive change has been achieved. The two outstanding areas where no change was made until recently were Northern Ireland, where classically politics, the process of the Good Friday Agreement, was the process by which change happened. And the most disastrous and tragic failure of my lifetime, uh, the Middle East, Palestine, where we have not been able to make change. But in other areas, we've been able to make massive change and through politics, not through stances which are taken. On the point you made in your introduction, I agree powerfully with the point that our international institutions, in particular the United Nations, but it extends to NATO, it extends to the EU, uh, are not able at the moment to deal with these issues. The great international financial institutions, IMF, World Bank, and so on, patently did not solve the 2008 uh, disaster. And I think there is a real issue for the world that the uh, structures that were established in about 1948 to about 1951-2 are not capable of dealing with the problems that we have. The problem I have then is saying, well, how do you change these? And it is required to have a process of consensus to change them, which is very difficult. But I'd say the ambition of people uh, who are 20 today, as I was 45 years ago, is to say we've got to change the conduct of international politics. We've got to be more international, more effective, more world government to try and deal with these things. And the response, which is the opposite view, which you see in some parts of the Conservative Party, in UKIP, in many parts of Europe, that says, actually, we want, let's look after ourselves, let's forget the international dimension. In my opinion, that's completely wrong. And though the international dimension is difficult, problematic, uh, and I, I haven't got particular things that say, OK, Helen, that sorts it. There is no way past 
having an internationalist approach to these questions. When you, so when you look at ISIL, when you look at Russia and uh, the Ukraine, whatever issue it is, your exercise about climate change, the ageing society, at the end of the day, you need international approaches to these things. I just want to pick you up on that idea about ISIL, because that's, that's quite interesting, isn't it, that Russia have acted unilaterally in Syria, for example. They acted unilaterally in, in the Crimea. And there was then no coherent international response. Mm. Is that something you think is going to happen more? One state will act unilaterally and just effectively thumb their nose at an well, international... Well, I think it's very dangerous. I mean, <coughs> I'm not actually against unilateralism. If unilateralism makes a difference, the discussion in our narrow politics in the UK about unilateral nuclear disarmament is actually a question about whether unilateral nuclear disarmament makes a difference. Unilateral action can make a difference. The question is whether um, that's the way to go. Now, I, I'm a pragmatist. If unilateral action can change things, fine. However, my observation is, in all of these situations, it's actually not unilateralism that works, but people working together. So the question is, how do you bind Iran? The biggest, best news of the last few months has been Iran being, to some extent, bound into something that we can see a positive approach. Russia, very difficult to deal with, I acknowledge. But the idea we just say, well, Russia's a load of rubbish, we can't deal with them, it's ridiculous. We've got to find a way of working with countries like Russia, with Iran, to try and deal with the issues that we have. And that's, that's the long bottom and sides of it. Well, that probably is a good point to bring you in at this point then, Simon, to talk about, you've come up with this idea of, of, of a good country index, ranking countries by how, how good they are. Can you perhaps introduce us to this and, and talk about what... What, what comes out of that? What's, what are the conclusions that you draw from kind of indexing countries in that way? Well, the index, um, the, the reason I, uh, I, I made it was because um, I was looking for a measurement and I couldn't find it. Um, there seem to be uh, endless indexes out there that measure the performances of countries individually as if they were uh, islands inhabiting their own private little oceans. But in an age of um, hyper-connected globalization, it's really quite important to know what each country contributes to the whole. And I couldn't find that data, so I thought I'd better try and put it together myself, um, with a little bit of help, a lot of help. Um, so we've, we managed to find 35 um, fairly robust data sets, which are mostly connected by the UN, which um, unintentionally happen to measure external impacts of countries, both good and bad. So um, not how well countries are performing internally, which, as I say, is a fairly boring thing to measure, uh, but what their impact is on the global commons, on the planet uh, or on humanity generally. And we stick them all together, and that creates a ranking, uh, which basically says at the top last year we had Ireland, which relative to the size of its economy uh, contributes more to the rest of the world than any other country. I think that's something that people will feel... I was surprised when I went mm. and read that. You were meant to be. Oh, well, good. <laughs> it worked. Because my perception of Ireland was a country which had felt, gone through difficulties following the kind of Celtic tiger and mm. overexposure to the global financial crisis. Mm. So on what basis did it win? Well, it, it won on the basis that the combination of those 35 data sets, which are by no means a complete or exhaustive picture of everything a country does, but most of the things that are convertible into data and which were me are measured in an equal way for at least 125 countries, on that basis, just uh, what I wanted to do was to present the notion, it looks as if Ireland is doing more at that point in time than any other. But the thing I find myself saying to people all the time about this index is that the answers to the world's problems are not going to be found in this or indeed in any other index, but 
they might just be found in the conversations that such indices stimulate. And what I really wanted to do more than anything else was to get people to ask new questions about countries. Instead of constantly asking how well are they doing, which is only really of interest to the people who live in that country, to start asking how much are they doing? Should we feel glad that they exist? As we drift off to sleep at night, should we feel glad that Russia exists or should we feel sorry that Russia exists? Because the tragedy at the moment, as Charles was saying just now so well, that nobody's looking after the whole. And um, my very simple, perhaps over-simple diagnosis of the world's problems is that we live in an age where all of the problems, even the quite small problems, have been massively and abundantly globalized to the extent that almost none of them can be solved by individual nations. Uh, Greece can't solve migration any more than Hungary can. Uh, China can't solve uh, the, the uh, global warming. America can't solve the economic crisis. Mexico can't solve narco-trafficking. All of these are globalized problems. They're vast. They're insoluble except by cooperation. And so we've got these globalized problems, but on the other hand, the nation states are still basically competing warring tribes on the model of the Treaty of Westphalia. And when we send our leaders off to the G20 or the UN, we're not really sending them to, to fight for a better world. We're sending them there to fight for a better deal for us. And this can only end in tragedy. And in terms of how you came to this, I mean, I think you know, most of us know that Charles has had a kind of a traditional career in politics. I guess you could call it that. You're, I mean, I've read, you know, brand consultant to nations. You well, had to go and tell Zimbabwe why it was that people didn't like them particularly much. I'm, I'm glad you've given me an opportunity to defend myself against this charge. Um, this probably sounds very pompous and silly, but I am a branding consultant in the same way that um, William Wilberforce is a slavery consultant. Um, I, I've spent most of the last 20 years doing my best to persuade governments not to waste taxpayers' money on stupid propaganda because it doesn't work. Mm. There's a horrendous tendency these days for countries from the very poorest upwards to spend enormous, gigantic sums of taxpayers' and sometimes donors' money on bragging about how wonderful they are in the hope that it will stimulate more trade or more tourism or more what have you. And frankly, if that, that's called nation branding. And frankly, if that were possible, we'd be living in the Third Reich today, not the European Union, because nobody did branding better than Hitler and Goebbels. And, and it doesn't work outside your own country. It only works when you control all the channels of communication reaching your audience. And in the outside world, it can't. Yes, so I guess North Korea is a good example of that. Right. Inside North Korea, it can control what comes yes. out, but the rest of us don't think, gosh, they have lovely parades there, don't they? What a, what a great place it Although must I be. Although I did once argue that North Korea was the most effectively branded state on the planet because they have precisely the image that they want. Okay, Troublemaker. <laughs> Helen, can I just follow up and, yeah. as it were, support and reinforce Simon? I was brought up, I was born in 1950, in a two-power world. It was a Cold War where it was a US-led system and a Soviet-led system. And uh, countries throughout the world, including the UK, uh, bent to that overall view. And actually, that was a way of looking at many conflicts that took place. After 1989, after the um, end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, it became a one-power world, i.e. United States world. It had nine times as much military power as the rest of the world put together. Uh, if you've ever been to San Diego and gone around their harbour, you'll see an extraordinary range of military might there, which is unbelievable. And it, the idea was, well, the US could sort it, the US could run the world. Uh, actually, the American electorate said, I, I identify myself, 2006, the midterms of George Bush's second term, 
the American electorate said, actually, we're not having that. The idea you can sort out Iraq, Afghanistan, or whatever, isn't on. And it became then uh, from a two-power world to a one-power world to a zero-power world. And the election of Obama was almost an uh, acknowledgement of that fact that the America wouldn't try. So when the Arab Spring came, the Americans wouldn't step in and say, OK, we're going to sort it out in this way or that way or the other way. So we have a zero-power world, having lived in most of my lifetime, not yours here in the gathering, a two to one to zero. So it becomes a world where you have large numbers of powers working in their different ways. And of course, a zero-power world is the same as an anarchic world in the sense there's nobody offering order. So then Simon's uh, picture of how do all the individual countries behave in this new world, what do they do, mm. what are their values, how do they operate, do they contribute to the world in some kind of way, becomes particularly important. Simon's view wasn't so important in 1955. I don't mm. kind of, I'm not knocking it, mm. but at the end of the day, in 1955, countries throughout the world were either following the, the, uh, the US lead or following the Soviet lead. Yes. That's not true today. And so how they behave and understanding how they behave and what they value becomes extremely important. And I think we're just about to go from two to one to zero and back to one again. Yeah. And, and the one is, is, uh, is people, is ordinary people. I think that the, the last remaining superpower on the, on the planet is public opinion. Yeah. And it's the one thing which governments listen to. And it's the one thing uh, which urgently needs to find a way of, of, of finding its voice. Um, a lot of governments are still persisting in a, in a very outmoded, neoliberal, selfish, defend our own interests way, which, as I say, is leading us to disaster. But the curious thing is that very more and more often they seem to be misjudging the real mood of their populations. And that's why the good, the good country, aside from the index, which is just a detail, is designed to be a grassroots global movement. We want to get the people who want to live in good countries, in other words, countries um, that are not merely interested in their own selfish ends, but actually want to uh, contribute something to peace and stability and prosperity um, globally, to tell their governments to wake them up. So how, in your conception, does the will of the people make itself known? Because I read that you mm. didn't vote for 20-odd mm. years, so mm. do you see more of a... Do you see referenda? Do you see... I mean, I think there's a town in Spain, isn't there, that's trialling kind of micro-referenda through yes. iPads and things like that? Yes. Well, I think, I think the reason why I and many other people find it difficult to vote is because we find it difficult to engage uh, with domestic politics. And more and more people, many of the members of the, of the good country uh, are coming to me and saying this. They're saying, I can't vote in national elections anymore because it all seems so trivial. And we've got these overgrown schoolboys in our parliaments uh, arguing over stuff that, well, it may be important today and tomorrow, but who's looking after the whole? And above the level of the nation state, there is no democracy. You can't vote on climate change. You can't vote on any of these global challenges. Um, and that's the problem. Where is the democracy going to come from? Some form of voting is going to be necessary, but I doubt whether it will come from, um, from uh, instruments of government. Well, overgrown schoolboys, Charles. It's fighting words. I'm certainly overgrown. Uh, <laughs> I can uh, make various physical uh, manifestations <laughs> in that way, though I'm fighting against being a schoolboy. Um, it's the first area in this conversation, even where I don't agree with Simon. Uh, I think that voting is extremely important. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues to be said about how well the political parties, including mine, the Labour Party, are offering a choice to people about how they change things. Uh, one of my sadnesses at the moment is that when you look at the international situation, ISIL, uh, Russia, Ukraine, etc., uh, EU membership even, there's an uncertain tone, let's put it like that, from Labour as to 
how we should be behaving in these situations. But I'm afraid that the decisions of the United Nations, of the European Union, of NATO, on how to behave in relation to the crises which we experience, even long-term and rather amorphous crises like climate change or the ageing society, let alone immediate crises like uh, the Ukraine-Russia situation, depend on how governments behave. At the end of the day, how governments behave. Now, of course, Simon's got a very, very important point when he says that governments behave according to the way they think their peoples want them to behave. And that is an argument for your uh, focus on trying to get people to have an internationalist approach and to get people to... Avert. But I think the opt-out, which is what I think, I'm afraid, a non-voting position is, is an opt-out, doesn't help us at all. Yeah. The argument should take us towards getting the main political parties, not only the Labour Party, mine, but also the Liberal Democrats, also the Conservatives even, to say, actually, we should be trying to play a role in the world yeah. in the spirit of your measure. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating that people shouldn't vote. Mm. Um, the reason why I don't vote, and I think my let-out for not voting, is that none of the parties were parties I felt I could vote for, which is why I've gone ahead and started my own. Now, admittedly, it's not... Well, that's what the good country is. It's a, it's a, it's party. a political party. It's, oh, a, it's an international political party. It's rather a curious piece because it can't stand for elections since it doesn't sit in any country. But then again, <laughs> if you look at... Uh, I'm trying to get it registered in the International Space Station. You wouldn't believe the bureaucracy. <laughs> um, Those space bureaucrats are hard to deal with. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> Tell me about it. But if we look at, look at a lot of the political actors in the world today... Um, I mean, Bono arguably wields quite a lot more power than a lot of uh, um, elected politicians do um, because he's operating on an international level about things that people care about. And politics is happening on the international stage. It's not happening at the level that we recognise of parliaments and votes and general elections and, and party membership, but it is happening, and that's the space where I want to operate. So what's your answer to... Because I think a lot of these problems... Climate change is a... Is, is an obvious example, where people don't feel that it is happening on a, on a human scale. They mm. don't feel that there's anything, you know, I, I recycle, I feel quite good about yeah. that, but what can, I, you know, what can I as a citizen, what can any citizen do about that? Well, I think that the, um, I, I'm a bit of a stuck record on this, I think what citizens need to do, if they believe in it, is to let their politicians know that they want them to be uh, acting multilaterally. Um, about these things and not simply getting the best deal for us so we can emit as much as we want and grow as much as we want, but um, to start becoming... I should explain, when I talk about a good country, I don't mean the word good in, in, in the sense of morals or ethics because that's a conversation that once you start will never finish and it varies, of course, gigantically from culture to culture and person to person. I mean good in the sense of the common good. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in practical consequences. Um, and there are certain behaviours which countries perform which are not in the interests of humanity or the planet in the longer term. And that's, that's basically what I mean by good behaviour. And people need to go to their politicians and say, look, you're the experts, we're not, but we want you to fight for everybody. Mm. We want you to fight for the survival of humanity. We want to be good ancestors. We don't just want to be happy citizens. That's quite a, a challenge to you, isn't it? The idea of, for example... The Green Party, for example, being formed as, as very much an environmental issues party, the, the good country. All of those you know, people I would have contest are going to take away votes from Labour if they are operating in the same space. This has been a big continuous thing about how as a party that aspires to be a governing party 
do you deal with voters who don't have a class-based loyalty to Labour, who are voting primarily on perhaps one issue? That, that your, your key word, Helen, there is class-based. There's a couple of things to say. Um, I, the most inspirational speech I ever heard was in Germany, listening to Willy Brandt, when he said the future of social democracy is red-green. That was his language. Why? Because if you took the logic of socialism or social democracy, it inevitably took you, in his view, towards a green approach to politics. When I was in the Cabinet, I argued with the, the Cabinet that we should be more green. Unfortunately, not everybody agreed, but that's life. Uh, but I think that is where the future of a left-centre should be. Um, I do think that... Um, we have focused too much on the international agreements. Part of Labour's successes were around Kyoto and the agreements in that area. I don't knock it at all. But actually, it's very simple. It's about transport and energy. Transport, journey to work, journey to school, energy, uh, energy saving plus using renewables rather than uh, carbon fuels. If you just focus on those four things, i.e. transport, energy, and the two things in each of them, that could transform our lives. So you are talking about changing policy certainly. But you're also talking about changing behaviour. Mm. And one of the problems of Labour, if, if we're being talking about Labour in this approach, is that we haven't focused enough on the behaviour aspects of it. We've got some strong policies on the international stuff, and in fact not just strong policies, I would say a strong achievement. I'm not John Prescott's greatest fan, but I think he did a good job on some of those areas and what he was uh, carrying through. As far as the Greens are concerned, I don't think they're serious about it. I interviewed Caroline Lucas uh, the week before last at a, a conversation event in the University of East Anglia in Norwich. And she was very good and very convincing. But when I asked precisely the question you asked me, why are you in green rather than supporting uh, green forces within Labour or the Conservatives or whatever, she doesn't, in my opinion, have a very good answer. I think her best answer is... Actually, the reason why we, the Greens, don't think we'll work with you in Labour is we've had a pretty dusty response from you in Labour. And so we've decided we've got to make our own message. And I would say that's a fair criticism of Labour. I don't think we've been strong enough on those issues. And Simon, you know, we talk a bit about your idea of, of a kind of pan-global idea, but there are people who are, I mean, this is... Rob Ford and Matthew Goodwin's analysis of UKIP voters. They call them, it's not a modern politics, it isn't so much about left and right, perhaps, mm. as they say, about the left behind. Mm. People for whom automation, uh, increasing industrialisation, you know, competition from lower wage workers, immigration, all of those things are, they feel, having a, a detrimental effect on their quality mm. of life. What does, you know, what does your initiative have to say to the left behind? Well, I don't think that these are forces we can, uh, we can change. I don't think they're things that we can do anything about. Um, I, I don't want to get out of the question, but I think that those are classic issues for domestic politics. Mm. Um, I, I think that it's, it's up to national governments to make sure um, that people who are left behind because they've lost their jobs and all the rest of it are, are able to cope. I think we also need to get over the fixation um, with the idea of employment versus unemployment, because I think the idea of branding people as unemployed uh, just because they've been unable to get a traditional job is past its sell-by date. Are you a universal basic income fan? <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, God, well, no, tell me why, because this is, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, this is an, uh, an idea that's very fashionable on the radical left, that yeah. a, a state should pay all citizens, regardless of what they do, a universal basic income so that they guarantee yeah. their citizens a minimum standard of living. Yeah. Um, 
it's plain that the money isn't really there to do things like that. Okay. Um, I, I think I'm more in favour of the idea of recognising that, that the relatively brief period in history when everybody was employed for life by an employer who ran a factory and you went to work there and you were employed by them for life until you retired. That period is now over. Industry has moved on and it's essential that we start uh, training people differently in schools to understand um, that these days the, looking for a job isn't the only possibility. Making work for yourself is another and perhaps even more important possibility. I think we're training kids the wrong way. And we're leading them to expect a world that's actually different from the one that they're going to find themselves in. And branding them as unemployed, which is a terrible way to brand them just because they haven't been able to get a job, is psychologically very unproductive. Um, as Mohammed Yunus may or may not have said, I'm maybe putting words into his mouth, in Bangladesh you don't have a job, you have a chicken. So the idea is you make your living. I'm not suggesting everybody should be an entrepreneur. But the way that the economy works these days is not necessarily through factory owners giving jobs to everybody. And we need to change education to, uh, to, to upgrade itself to that realisation. Mm. Could I make a point, Helen, on the UKIP point you mm. raised earlier, Ruth? Uh, what I really feel about this is there's a big chunk of the population, a big chunk of the population, maybe a quarter, maybe a third, who feel that conventional politics does absolutely nothing for them. Mm. And it doesn't solve the problems they have. So if they're worried about immigration, if they're worried about welfare, if they're worried about the ageing side, if they're worried about climate change, they look at the conventional politicians playing games of various kinds, not touching their lives in any big way. This is not just a British issue. It's the same with the Tea Party movement in the States. It's the same with the Front National in uh, Marie Le Pen in France. It's the same with Syriza in a different way. It's the same with Podemos in Spain. And millions of people are saying... Conventional politics isn't floating our boat. It's not doing what we want to see done to deal with the problems we worry. And they look at how the conventional politicians deal with subjects like immigration, welfare reform, or whatever, and see the conventional politicians as broadly evading the questions rather than trying to deal with them. And so the Pied Piper comes along. It can be Nigel Farage, or it can be Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, or it can be Tsipras in Greece, or it can be Sarah Palin in the United States. The Pied Piper comes along and says, we're against all this rubbish, vote for us and give them a shock. And I think that's a big factor in contemporary politics and very damaging. Now, there are people who say, well, the way to deal with that is to attack them, to say, you know, Nigel Farage is a stupid toff, or, uh, you know, Alex Salmond is an obsessed Scottish, whatever he is. Actually, the only way to solve it isn't by attacking those movements. It's for conventional politics to get itself together and solve the problems that people are exercised about. And we are not... Uh, we, and I call myself conventional politician from this point of view, conventional politics is not solving these problems. So people say, well, what's the point of view in that case? We'll go down the course of some, something else. So the answer lies in yourself, as they say. And conventional politics, for all kinds of reasons, has not been able to solve it. Now, part of the reasons, which are understandable if not defensible, is that these are very difficult problems to solve. It's very tough to get um, to a good position on immigration or a good position on welfare reform or whatever, or how do you deal with it. These are tough problems. But my argument is these tough problems have to be faced up to. And by the way, final point, the conventional political approaches which you referred to right at the beginning of what you said, of short-termism, don't necessarily solve it. We need, if we're going to you know, fund the NHS properly or whatever it might be, to look at some uh, approach across traditional 
political party boundaries and say, can we work together to solve these problems? There's too much partisanship from that part, I mean, petty partisanship, not real partisanship, yeah. rather than saying, how do we sort these things out? Well, before we get to questions, perhaps I can ask you kind of to end this part, this section, on an optimistic note by saying, can you name either a person or an initiative or a, a policy decision that you think is really genuinely innovative and exciting? Who's out there doing things that you think are pointing the way to the future of how we might look at some of these issues? The lady in uh, Iceland who decided that uh, when her um, government minister said that they were going to take in four Syrian families over the next three years, she said, not in my name. I'll open my house to them and I'll even play their, pay their airfares. Started a Facebook page. Within a couple of days, I think something like 15% of the population of Iceland was saying the same. This, for me, is, is, is what, I'm, what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who, who say that. They say, not in my name. We want, to be, we want to live in a good country. We don't want to live in a successful country. Mm. And I see this kind of uh, reaction popping up all over the place. Um, I think the time has come uh, for people to start saying that uh, they, they want to think about bigger things. Charles? That's why I'm hopeful. Very tough question. I, mine will come second place to uh, what Simon's just said. Uh, a guy called David Lipsy, who people here won't have come across, but he was a minority member on the Social Care Commission, argued for a different approach to social care where we should get involved in a very positive way, and I think we need practical solutions to serious problems of this kind. Um, and uh, I emphasise the word practical. I think it's a very, very important thing. What did he propose then? I mean, is this about the integration of healthcare and social care? It's partly care? about the integration of health and social care, but it's also about accepting that everybody should make a contribution towards trying to ensure that they are looked after in old age. And uh, finally, that's what's beginning to come through. Well, that's not optimistic, because you've made me start thinking about the NHS funding hole, which is one of those things that, I, again, I should probably worry about more, but I assume that you know, it's not worth worrying about. The NHS funding hole is a big, big question. There's a massive dishonesty. Everybody says we don't ration healthcare. Actually, we do ration healthcare. There's massive rationing in healthcare. Everybody, most politicians, like to pretend we don't ration healthcare. But actually, the basic story is very simple. The amount of money that's coming is going along a flat line or even going down. The demand for health, I'm glad to say, because of an ageing society, increased capacity to do things is going up like that, as is the case for education. Well, how are you going to fund it? At the end of the day, somebody's got to pay. Now, you can say you should just pay through more taxes. Uh, I don't think that will work myself, though there's a, I accept there's a good discussion to be had about do we have a... I mean, the Scandinavian countries, you mentioned Iceland, have a high-tax, high-social service economy, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. But at the end of the day, we've got to face up to those things. Our problem is we're not even facing up to them. Well, at that point, I think it would be nice to, to take a question from the audience. Uh, I think you might have to bellow. Um, yeah. Yeah, go and shout, and then I'll repeat it back to everybody. Um, so, two quick questions. Um, you sort of slightly dismissed, I think, the domestic politics. But I was thinking, you know, the international system, the way it works, is that there's a number of people who are very
let's do the second one of those first, because I think actually probably, and it's probably more useful to talk about the institutions in order. So the EU, what's, what's wrong with the EU as it's currently, is there anything wrong? And if so, what is it? What's wrong with that as an institution? Right. We're, okay, so we're doing the second we'll do question that, first. We'll do that one first, yeah. Um, the European U Union is the noblest experiment in the history of humanity, um, in intention. Um, it's virtually the only time in human history that a group of uh, nation states have had the wisdom and the maturity to give up um, a portion of their precious sovereignty, which is basically the best gig you've got if you're a politician, um, for the better, the greater good. Mm. And uh, to see how directionless the European Union has become and how weakly and uh, insecurely it wields this, this great moral power it has is a, is a bit of a tragedy. Mm -hmm. I hope it finds its way very soon. The migration crisis uh, could be, should be, I hope will be, the remaking of Europe. It's what Europe should have been longing for all this time. Um, the European Union lost its defining purpose when it succeeded in largely preventing conflict within Europe. From that point on, because it was going to be downhill, about um, uh, roaming charges for cell phones, which is all fine. But in the end, it wasn't ever going to really go anywhere or achieve any real power unless it was confronted with a problem as large as the Second World War. Here's one coming along that's larger than the Second World War. What we're seeing at the moment as a result of, the, of, of, uh, of a civil war in Syria is just a little aperitif for the gigantic waves of migration uh, that are coming down the road as a result of climate change. This is the European Union's moment. And I hope to God that it manages to see that and seize it. But who knows? And, and Charles, I mean, is there a case for saying that the European Union, as well as that, was also okay when, when the global economy seemed to be on an upswing? Everybody felt a sense of optimism that things were getting better. We had the Eastern European states join us. And that, that optimism has gone, and that's affected the European project too. I'm a very strong pro-European. I believe the UK should be an active participant in the European Union. Um, the first stage on the European Union is for the UK to stay inside the European Union, which I would hope I'd never need to say, but it is a debate right now as we speak. The second stage, which is related, is the European Union becoming active to deal with the massive issues it has to face. I wrote something called uh, EU and Migration, a call for action in 2011, uh, because uh, I agree with what Simon's saying. But the point about the migration crisis, nothing new. The idea anybody was shocked about what happened. Uh, obviously, people should be shocked about what actually happened, but it wasn't new. Exactly the same things were happening four or five years ago, and the EU governments were not prepared to deal with this. Our government has been extremely negative in this respect. Um, and I speak now as... A, I've tried not to be partisan in what I'm saying so far, but I believe that the UK government has been extremely poor in dealing with these questions. And I agree with Simon that, uh, that migration generally is a classic issue where the EU should be playing a very positive role. It's not simply about distributing uh, people across the EU, as has become the debate at the moment, for which Ang Angela Merkel is being vilified. It's about how you intervene as the EU internationally in other places, notably Syria at the moment, but also much more widely, to try and get a much more positive approach. And the fact is, the EU has become frozen in the last 10 years. Uh, and in fact, the classic illustration of that statement is the passage by this government in 2011 of a new law which said if there were to be any uh, uh, moving of, quote, sovereignty, unquote, to the EU, there'd have to be a referendum in the UK 
because everybody's frightened of that, uh, for justifiable reasons, by the way, e the UK cannot participate on giving the EU more ability to deal with these kinds of questions. Now, that's true on migration. It's also true on a wide range of other issues. Um, I believe, for the reasons I argued earlier, that it is through stronger international institutions that we will be more effective in trying to deal with the issues we have to face. Now, why has the EU not got warmth in these areas? It's been extremely bureaucratic. It's got completely frozen. Uh, it hasn't been able to move on any of these questions which are actually affecting people's lives. When I was Home Secretary, I made this argument in the European Parliament. If you look at the uh, issues of serious and organised crime, drug dealing, people trafficking, you can also say counter-terrorism if you want to take that into the equation. The EU is being seen as the problem rather than the solution in these kind of areas. And we have a ridiculous state of affairs where vast, you know, uh, 20 times as much money is spent on the common agricultural policy is, is in trying to deal with fighting people traffickers. The EU has got frozen. Now, it would take a seriously, positively committed British government working with strong other governments in the EU to try to move it forward. And that, for me, is the only way forward. But it's a very hard line. I'm in a very small minority of people who are strongly in favour of UK membership of the EU and also strongly in favour of more activist EU internationally to deal with the international problems we have. But you know, Helen, you're a journalist, you know exactly what the state of mind is right across the world. I know the that there area. is no love for the EU, even among people. I, mean, I don't love the EU. I, that, I that's I what I mean. There are people thing. who hate the EU and for whom the EU is, you know, is, on an activist level, is the issue that they care most passionately about. Mm. There are very few Europhiles with that level of dedication and mm. verve. And I think, that is a, I think that is a problem. It's very hard to love a bureaucracy. It is. And uh, I mean, a well-intentioned experiment is true, but it's also a question of turning that experiment into reality. You, I mean, you're going to come in a moment, so I won't comment on it generally, but you look at the UN or the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, or the other international institutions, NATO even, uh, the same questions arise. If these institutions are just there and are unable to act in the eyes of the electorate on the issues which concern them, people say, why do we have them? Why do we bother? Well, that, and that's the state of affairs. That leads me very neatly to, to the UN and the problem mm. of, of Syria, where action was blocked by Russia in the UN Security mm. Council, and then Russia decided to act without really much care about any, what anyone else in the UN Security Council thought. How do you, how do you deal with, in a, a consensual framework, somebody who just stamps their feet and does whatever they want? I don't know. But I want to try and answer this gentleman's questions because mm. we've rather overlooked them. They do, they do coincide with this. The, the first question about domestic politics, perhaps I didn't express myself very well here. I'm, I'm not saying that domestic politics are unimportant. Of course they're important. Of course we need them. And of course the countries have to be run. And of course that has an impact on how the country behaves externally. I'm not talking about uh, replacing um, domestic politics and I'm not talking about doing the job that governments do domestically. What I am talking about is changing the way that governments engage internationally, um, from uh, fighting for the country's interests to uh, collaborating. And to your second point, and this is where we come back to the UN and the other multilateral institutions, um, I'm really not in favour of creating um, new bureaucracies and new uh, institutions. I think we've got quite enough as it is. And I think in conception they're not wrong. I think we just use them wrongly. Um, because the culture of governance is still basically one, as I said earlier, of warring tribes. Naturally, we use the UN and the other 
um, frameworks that we have in the wrong way for the wrong purposes. Look, ultimately the problem is that the United Nations and all of these institutions, they ultimately derive their power only um, from the amount of sovereignty that the nation states that belong to them are prepared to cede to them. And in the end, very few countries are prepared to hand over a stick to a supranational institution and just say to them, beat me with this whenever you feel like it. So they're fundamentally emasculated. They're not going to make policy. I don't think there's any form of global governance that I could imagine working. But I think if we, if we start at the grassroots level and through popular pressure, no, wrong word, not pressure, popular engagement with governments, letting them know that we want them to behave slightly differently in our name on international issues, we will change the culture of governance and thus governments will want to use the international institutions in a different, more productive way for collaborating instead of fighting. And I could easily see um, the UN, as it's currently configured, being used very effectively as an arbiter or moderator for coalitions of five or six countries to get together over a period of time to crack an issue that they're particularly interested in. So you could get five countries to club together under the aegis of the UN and say, we're going to spend five years looking at narco-trafficking and seeing what we can do together. I think the institutions are perfectly capable of doing that. They just need to be used in a different way. And talking, to stay on domestic politics for a minute, are you interested or excited by very local level politics? Because I have to say, we had at the New Statesman both Tessa Jowell and Sadiq Khan, who are running for London Labour Mayor or Primary, coming to talk to us. And listening to them talk about the specific policies they were going to have on transport, things they mm. could enact on air pollution in London, mm. housing, house building. I felt, oh, right, this is somebody whose constituency is of a size that I can imagine, you know, and, and there is a, a, a thesis about the fact that, you know, mayors are going to, you know, rule the world because actually there is a great amount that you can do in the population unit the size of a city. Yes. I get excited uh, by politics at any level when I see that people are bearing in mind the global consequences of everything they discuss. And I've seen that happen more often at a city level mm -hmm. than I have at the national level in many, many places. I suppose the cultural change that I think that we need to see, perhaps this is a, a little oversimplifying, but I would like to see nationalism or regionalism or parochialism become as taboo as racism and sexism have begun to become. 20 years ago, if you were in a town council meeting and you let slip a racist or a sexist remark, people would chortle. Mm. Today, you might lose your job, you might even go to prison. And that proves that this kind of cultural change can happen. And yet today, you can go to any town council meeting and you can hear people saying unbelievably irresponsible things about the consequences or the lack of consequences or their lack of care about the consequences of what they're doing on other people just because they happen to live in another country and we don't care about them. Um, and I think that should become taboo. I think it should get to the stage where if you make a comment that is uh, regionalist or parochial or nationalist, you will use, lose your job or possibly go to prison. Well, I'm going to put that to Charles because I went up to Scotland before the election and I went and met Mari Black, now the uh, SNP MP for Paisley and Rubbish South, and um, Douglas Alexander, who previously sat on a majority of 16,000 for Labour in that seat. And I said to him, how do you fight nationalism? It's an emotional feeling. People feel... Scottish as part of the, you know, that they feel that's their primary mode of identity. And what argument about regional allocations and tax rates can you possibly make as Labour to fight that? How does a traditional political party fight the emotive forces of regionalism and nationalism? Very, very difficult question. Um, I'd say about two or three different things. Thing one, 
you can never deny people's identity with their own local communities. Uh, whether it's Norwich in the case of when I was a Member of Parliament, whether it's Scotland in the case of, or, or Paisley, interesting question where it is. But if you start saying this isn't a feeling which is important or which counts, at the end of the, bit of the day, people will turn against you. Point two, it's important to make the intellectual argument and the political and passionate argument that internationalism is actually the story for the future. If you look at dealing with uh, Scottish nationalism, for example, it is self-evidently the case that um, even in independent Scotland, uh, a national Scottish government would be constrained in similar ways to a UK government is by the international situation which we, fa which we face. And so you have to have an argument that says internationalism counts and internationalism is important. The third thing which relates to that second argument is it's got to be in the field of practicality. Uh, and unfortunately, here's a point here which is difficult. Uh, power counts. Power is real. There's lots of people who like to think power doesn't count. In fact, this particular institution where we are today has made an enormous reputation out of inspiration of idealism and so on. But actually, power matters. So what governments do matters. What international institutions do matter. And you can't abstract from that. You can't say, actually, if you're in government in Scotland or the UK or wherever you are, you can somehow uh, get away from the fact that other governments are deciding what they're doing. I agree very much with what Simon's saying about what I used to hate, a phrase I hated in our discussions with the European Union, so-called red lines, mm. things that we would never go beyond. I've never liked that as a means of discussing. I don't think it's right. But I think the only way to contest it is to recognise the validity of the local relationship that people feel. Yep. People are uh, part of their community. They want to be part of, of their course. community, but say, actually... The better welfare of our community, okay, question, what do you mean by our community, only thrives in an international environment. And that's why I like Simon's work, actually, because what he's trying to do, okay, at the level of countries rather than Paisley, is to say, actually, we should all be looking at what, can be what we can be contributing more widely. There's nothing at all wrong, of course, with national or local pride. Mm. Nothing could be more natural or more comfortable than that. The question is, where does, what is the source of that pride? And I don't know for how many people I speak, but I feel more proud of being British if we're doing things that make people around the world feel glad that Britain exists. Mm. Um, I don't feel proud of being British because we're more competitive than other countries or because we're more selfish than other countries or because we do better than other countries. Or richer. Or richer. And, and I think that, um, you know, ultimately there is a, a selfish competitive side and there is an empathic sharing side in all of us and in all countries. It's just a question of which comes out when. And I think that wisdom consists in realising that we've reached a stage in history where we've worshipped uniquely at the altar of competitiveness for far too long. And now it's time to start pushing up the slider on collaboration and cooperation a little bit more because otherwise we are doomed. And what about saying something to people for whom identity functions in their politics in a different way. So, for example, people who vote on a single issue, they mm. see themselves as a, a, a countryside dweller first, or a Muslim first, or yes. any one of uh, other sort of multi-identities. How does internationalism speak to those people? Well, maybe it doesn't. And, and the last thing that I would ever want to claim is that this um, 
this, this stall, this, this view that I'm setting out is for everybody. Mm. In fact, I know exactly who it's for. It's for about 700 million people. I like um, that, just, just, just the 700 million. Well, I did I'm a bit of research, and, yeah. which I luckily haven't got time to explain. Um, it's 701 million people, actually. I should have to go back to my notes. <laughs> but around about, a, 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 around about 10% of the world's population appears to already espouse the view that international issues are just as important, if not slightly more important, than domestic issues. And that being a good ancestor is slightly more important, perhaps, than uh, being a happy citizen. Now, am I wrong to think that, there is that, that those people are cosmopolitans? You are indeed wrong to think that. Because that's what, that's what it, it, it immediately springs to mind. That, uh, actually, the mo maybe the most affluent 10% mm. who see glo globalisation as a means to you know, go and work in New York for a yeah. bit. Um, no, actually, that was my greatest fear, but it turned out not to be the case. Um, a, a really significant number of the people who are interested in the good country movement, whatever you want to call it, and who write to me every day, are actually people from, for example, South Asia. I get thousands of emails a month from people in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. And eventually, I ask some of them, why is it that you're so interested in this? And they say, well, that's what we were taught when we were growing up. And it's quite an interesting, people have pointed this out to me endlessly, that actually almost all the sensible religions have always taught exactly the same principles that I'm always banging on about. That all men are your brothers and all women are your sisters, irrespective of which uh, passport they happen to carry. And that um, the earth and other species are given into trust to human beings to look after. I didn't invent these things. Um, they've been around for a very long time. And so what I'm finding um, very gratifyingly is that a lot of people who are neither rich nor educated nor Western find things in this worldview that appeal to them and which they don't see happening in reality and are really anxious to try to promote some uh, movement mm. in the right direction. But the additional issue beyond the values, Helen, which you've just articulated with Simon, which is what do we do about globalisation? I mean, the fact is, globalisation is a world economic, principally, but not only economic, cultural also, force, which is behaving uh, in a way we've never seen until, I don't know, 30 years ago, which is transforming communities. Mm. Paisley, you mentioned earlier. Mm. Paisley is being changed mm. by globalisation. Um, now, how do we deal with this? It's an issue, not just Labour, but all the social democratic parties, which have traditionally defended communities in these circumstances, have found extremely difficult to wrestle with. Yeah. And at one level, the simple defence, which says, keep away, we don't want competition from what's going on, yeah. uh, is, uh, is, uh, doesn't help you. We've just seen today, globalisation of the seal industry, classic case. Swarajpal's son has just killed himself, or appears to have killed himself, jumping off a tower block as his company, Caparo, has gone under and all the jobs have been lost. Globalisation is making these things happen. Now, can you somehow stop the world and get off this process of globalisation? There was an argument when I was your age for an alternative economic strategy which said we can somehow isolate Britain from these globalising changes. Of course, I would say the whole of the uh, Eastern Europe under the Soviets was a view that somehow you could isolate the Soviet uh, bloc from this world change. At the end of the day, it couldn't. And I think that's the issue that has to be wrestled with. I don't have answers to this problem, by the way. I don't think, however, that we can just say globalisation um, 
can be stopped in its tracks in this. But if you don't say that, then globalisation is having its impact in every community, whether you choose a Paisley or a South Asian uh, community or whatever. But, but and we haven't found a way through. Globalisation isn't only about um, e economic challenges, a new economic order that we all somehow or other have to get used to, and the process is a very painful one. It's also about extraordinary opportunities. And um, I, of the many extraordinary opportunities that globalisation presents to us, the one that I always like to highlight most is the cultural opportunities it brings. Because one of the things I've discovered throughout my career is that we need more than ever these days good ideas, original, creative, innovative ideas. And if you do that cross-culturally, if you do that with teams with different backgrounds, different educations, different cultures, different languages, you get thousands more ideas than you would if you've just got people from the same background. And my argument is that the globalization, the mixing of backgrounds and educations and languages and races and species of humanity offers us a creative force of breathtaking power. And when we're worrying about competitive uh, forces, we shouldn't also forget that actually it provides us with a competitive force. Look, I agree. Mm. If I was in red car, I'm not sure I would agree in quite the same way. But they're not ready. And, and somehow, uh, we, we, meaning now Labour, hasn't succeeded in finding a dialogue. I completely agree about the creative dynamism yeah. of globalisation. I mean, for Redgar, for the closure of the steel factory there, is that one of the reasons that that is closing, as I understand it, is because China is dumping subsidised steel. So China is pursuing a protectionist policy, essentially. That, then, that then requires, going back to the discussion you started, Helen, about the quality of our international institutions, to what extent does the World Trade Organisation, IMF, World Bank, etc., create a regime in which countries can't, uh, like China in this case, can't behave like that? And the answer is it doesn't. It's a very partial world government. It's mm. bits of world government, but not whole well, that world government. brings me to my may, slight obsession, which is... I just, oh, yeah, thing, just two seconds. May heaven forgive me, but in my heart of hearts, I find it really hard to say that I worry more about somebody being unemployed in red car than I do about somebody being unemployed in China. What's the difference? If more people are getting more jobs as a result of something going on somewhere, I think that's okay. And I find it very difficult to say this is bad because somebody's lost a job in red car that's gone to China. It's good for the people in China. They've got a job. But that is exactly, that is, I think that is the interesting thing that finally divides the two of you because mm. no one would ever get elected as an MP saying that. Right. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to worry about well, no, elections. So, <laughs> so you're, in a, you're in a very fortunate situation there. The one thing I wanted to pick up before we on to ask another question is, you mentioned the World Trade Organization. I think there is a really interesting question when we talk about these supranational institutions. There are some, but they are non-state actors. Big companies, you know, your Amazons, Googles, these kind of massive Starbucks. It, companies that will base themselves anywhere and nowhere. And we are spectacularly failing to get to grips with them, aren't we? Completely. I mean, I don't get the business. Uh, for example... I'm in favour of harmonisation of corporation tax rates across the EU. I think there's no benefit whatsoever in having a competition between EU countries by reducing your corporation tax levels. And uh, Scotland as well, by the way, the SNP yeah. wants to reduce the, the, the level. I, can't, I, I don't get it. I don't see what it's about. Equally, obviously, there are fundamental tax issues for corporate taxation which affect the companies you're talking about. But we all allow the various Liechtensteins and so on to operate quite wrongly. I could talk at length about it, but uh, I, I shan't. But it's, it's actually, it's completely outrageous. Now, can we get something wider than the EU? I'm quite sceptical. But I think even if we had an EU common regime about taxation of corporations who were selling stuff in the EU, 
or, or a common corporation level, level corporation tax in the EU, it would take you massively forward. But it's blocked, blocked, blocked. Including our government did it, by the way. We blocked it as well because we thought Jersey was very important for reasons which completely escaped me. Bergerac. And Bergerac, I think it is that. It's yeah. the romantic side of it. You're showing your generation here, and you want to be careful. <laughs> how, many, how many people here have heard of Bergerac? But I know what you mean. <laughs> but uh, but I'm, I'm in favour of a very strong, very aggressive strategy on all this. Well, actually, and, that, and just to bring you back to the, chi the China point, because mm. one of the reasons that, that you say you want to have a, you know, a job in China is worth as much as a job in Redcar, a job in China is not necessarily of the same quality and protection mm. And one of the reasons that so many businesses we know want to base their operations in China is that, for example, their working time practices are not perhaps what quite what sure. they could be. How do you, under your model, what, what, what influence do we bring to bear on other countries to, to, for example, to make their jobs have better protections, better workplace protections? Well, I'm with Charles on this. I think that the, 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 the role of the multilateral institutions is to ensure that there are common standards. Um, and, uh, and, and that we don't have countries that have an unfair advantage by paying workers too little or treating them badly. This has, of course, got to change, and one hopes it will change. At the moment, there aren't enough mechanisms for ensuring that. Over time, we need to develop them. Okay, well, I think I'm going to take another question. I think we now have a microphone, so, um, gentleman at the back, if you wait for that to come to you. Hello. Hello. Um, so, I think it's been, it's been a very interesting uh, discussion so far. Um, and it seems to have focused a lot on the issues and the problems that the, that the world faces. Um, and obviously, they're, they're quite big. So what I'm interested in, for both uh, Charles and Simon, is what's the, the one idea or the one thing that either citizens could do or politicians could do um, that would make the biggest change for good in the world, um, what's what's the one thing perhaps that we can all take away? The one idea that we can take away from this conversation and think, right, if that happened, okay. you know, that would be positive change in the world. You, if you want to stall, I could just tell a version of something that I heard about recently. I went up to SNP conference in Aberdeen and I did a, a panel about Palestine and the Gaza Strip and some of the conditions there. And someone said to me. Um, who'd worked for Médecins Sans Frontières there. Well, actually, one of the things that's really revolutionising life in the Gaza Strip is solar panels. Because at the moment, what happens is Israel controls the electricity supply and they often will only let you know, a certain number of hours a day of electricity into the Strip. And what happens is, when you have solar panel technology, is that you've given people, again, the ability to control their own electricity generation. That means they can do things fundamentally at the time that they want to do them. You're giving their... Their, their agency back. And I thought that was a really good example of something that I would never have thought about in the, as Charles referenced, the incredibly intractable problem that is Israel-Palestine. Something as simple as a, a very cheap solar panel has made a big difference to people's lives. So having given you, having stalled for time, <laughs> Charles. Uh, I think my central message, I, I think it's very interesting the solar panel point, and I've, it's, a, it's defeated me for a long time, why solar panels in many parts of the world aren't being developed more. And I could talk at length about the prices of different panels in different <laughs> countries and so on, but I shan't. The central point is we have to acknowledge our problems are international and therefore need international solutions. And there is a polarity between that view and the view of the group of people who I think are most dangerous, who says, we can't do anything internationally, we've got to do everything uh, and be introverted in what we do. UKIP is the classic illustration of that, but there are also other forces right across politics. So my first message is that if I was asked to pick an issue which would transform our world in a different way, it is 
Israel-Palestine to try and find some stable solution in that area. Uh, I've been very pessimistic about this now for 20 years, and I'm very negative about a number of the players in that situation. I think there were moments when it might have been possible to get an agreement, but while that agreement remains unsolved, we will find it very, very, very difficult to, uh, to make progress, in my opinion. Simon. I think um, I've had plenty of time to think on this one. <laughs> Thank you both. Um, I think it's to, uh, to ask a simple single question of anybody who stands for office uh, in, in your country, or indeed anybody in any position of power or authority. If they're running a company, they're running the parish council. I think they have to be asked the question, what in your mind is this country for? Why do we exist? Why are we allowed to continue to occupy the space on the Earth's surface that we currently occupy? And if they haven't got a good answer for that, or if their answer is in order to provide a better standard of living for our citizens, then you just simply don't vote for them. I, I, um, I thought you weren't voting anyway, <laughs> in respect to their answer to the question. As you may recall, Charles, I did say that other people should. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think that, um, I think that it's time for a new mandate for people in power. The traditional mandate up until now has been a very simple single one. If you're elected, or if you're appointed, or if you're a tyrant and you're allowed to remain in power, um, you're responsible for your own people and your own businesses and your own voters. And I think we now have to get the message across to governments that the mandate has now changed and that it's now a dual mandate. You're responsible for the people in your own country and for every man, woman, child and animal on the planet. You're responsible for your own slice of territory and for every square kilometre of the Earth's surface and the atmosphere above it. Now, as you can imagine, when I say that to most politicians, they say, you're out of your mind. I have enough trouble keeping my own parliamentary party happy, let alone seven billion people and Lord knows how many hectares. Of course, I'm not saying you have to prioritise them equally. If you're a domestic politician, of course your first priority is your own people. That stands to reason. I guess what I'm saying is you should never be able to make another plan or policy ever again that leaves out from the calculation the consequences of what you're doing on those other people, because we have that wider responsibility. So that's the one thing I would like to change, the culture of people in power to understand that their responsibility is universal. And how under that, I mean, what about the concept of apathy? There are a great number of people for whom even engaging in politics once every five years mm. in a general election is, is not really something. Is your argument then that if people felt that there was something to vote for, they would vote more often, or they felt there was something to campaign for, they would campaign more strongly? It's possible. I mean, again, I think this is probably a rather easy answer, but they're probably not in my 10%. They're probably not the 700 million. But I do think that if 10% start showing people that actually it is possible to, to, to create a change, um, and there's a real possibility of creating a better world as a result of it, then I think that will galvanise many more people mm. because they'll see that the thing works. They'll see that, that something can happen. Can happen. And, and by the way, I think it's worth pointing out that although we, we've spoken about good countries, this model of acknowledging your wider responsibility beyond your own people and your own territory, it does scale. You can have a good university. You can have a good company. You can have a good village. So it's not entirely a question of getting people to think about global issues for hours on end, which I find very tiring, and I'm sure other people do as well. But in your day-to-day -day life, you could ask the same question. In our company, in our university, in our school, in our college, whatever it is, are we also thinking about the impact of everything we do on the people around us, nationally and globally? 
And if not, should we be? I mean, that's interesting, because one of the things I think there's been a big movement, a big grassroots movement about, is about living wage employers. You know, is your... Is everybody in your company paid the London living wage, which I think is now about £9.40? You know, are your cleaners paid that? You know, and, and I think that's something that I, I think is something where you can kind of think charity begins at home or activism begins at home, is actually, you know, is your, is, is your company's cleaner paid a living wage? That's something I think that everybody could go in and, uh, and find out. Um, should we take a...? No, it's a very good question. It's a very correct question. I feel very torn on this. If you look at the Arab Spring, for example, there's no question but that social media played a very important role in the Arab Spring in encouraging and stimulating people to strike against the regimes which they wanted to, uh, quite rightly in my opinion, to overturn. Social media was not as successful in helping coalesce the uh, same people who'd called for the changes to create uh, a way of running the country after the regimes had been moved on. At another level, uh, social media, I think, is very dangerous in, in countries like this one because the people who go to social media are thought to be far more representative of popular opinion than, in fact, they are. And it's a... It's a small group of people who are influencing the public debate in a very substantial way, despite representing a, 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 a small section of the society. And that's why I find your question difficult to, uh, to answer. I suppose I'd summarise it by saying, I think the idea that through social media people can be mobilised to express their desire for a better world, leaving aside in rather global terms what we mean by a better world, is a very good thing and a very positive thing. But I don't think they replace, as some people want to do, the need for political institutions of a variety of different kinds. I use the word institution rather loosely. It can be a very quick thing, which have the ability to really take on responsibility for developing and running society. And I think social media is good at the first, but bad at the second. May, um, may I, I was going to say, may I, but it, weirdly, I was on Women's Hour this very morning talking about this subject, so I have, um, I have, a, a, so I, I have a disturbing number of thoughts on this. And my, my feeling is, uh, happily similar to Charles's, which is that social media is excellent for consciousness raising. You know, if you want to get the word out about the good country, absolutely, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, they, you know, they will help you enormously. But there, it has to only be the first step, because actually with that serious engagement, with that strong bond, you, you don't build anything. Um, there's a very famous Malcolm Gladwell essay from the Arab Spring called The Revolution Will Not Be Tweeted, which was experienced an enormous backlash at the time. But he went back to the American Civil Rights Movement, to the march over the bridge at Selma, to the sit-ins, and he traced the fact that those people who were involved in that were friends, they were often college roommates, you know, they were people who absolutely relied on each other. And I think anyone who's here who's been involved in any kind of activism will know that you have to trust your fellow activists, sometimes to the extent of, in the Arab Spring, you know, knowing that you won't report you to the secret police or whatever, sometimes to the sense of, will they actually turn up to the meeting? Will they send around the email that they said they'd send to everyone? And that's where social media falls down. It, 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 it spreads enormously through weak bonds, it can, it can you know, span the earth in, a, in 90 seconds, but it, it is not good at creating the strong bonds that you need. So the best social media campaigns have started there, and they tend to have developed somewhere else. 
The um, example that I always give is Laura Bates's Everyday Sexism Project, which was a phenomenal way of, of alerting particularly men to the, some of the sexism that women experience in their everyday life. What she then did is went on to do Project Guardian, which was working with the Met Police to develop responses to sexual assaults on public transport. And that's exactly the same thing, that something that I think a movement can get its word out through social media, and it's a great way for people to, I think also for people with the same niche interest to find themselves across the globe. You know, I think some of the social justice movements, the transgender rights movement, for example, that is a very small minority of the population. They have found each other across the globe, and people who would have otherwise felt very lonely have found other people with the same issues as them. But it can't build political consensus. Sorry, that's my, um, <laughs> that's my tuppence worth. Anyway, Simon. Very good, too. I was just about to say I had a marvellous piece on Women's Hour this morning. <laughs> which um, yeah, flattering. And, and marvellous it was. Um, it seems to me that the technology that we have today still is very, very primitive. And the one thing it has not yet been able to get beyond is the fact that it still really is almost impossible to have a proper, big, wide conversation with a large number of people. Uh, Facebook, despite the enormous numbers of people who use it, is still just a couple of drunks arguing in a bar. And you walk past and you stop and listen for a bit and then you wander on. That's not a big conversation. And one of the things that, uh, that the good country is going to need sooner or later is a platform that actually genuinely does enable 700 million people to really have a proper conversation, an in-depth conversation, and a platform that somehow captures what they're saying without losing the nuance without doing it as an idiot poll, because most of the platforms out there, they take a complex issue like migration, they boil it down to an idiot binary question, do you like or dislike migration? And then they poll people on it and they end up with a ratio. Now that's not useful to policymakers, it's not going to influence policymakers. So at some point in the future, there's a new invention that needs to be created that will actually enable us to listen to what large numbers of people are saying as they're having a very big conversation on these issues. It's a technolog technological challenge of a very high order, but I think we're very near to being able to solve it. But I think that's an interesting point, because it is a huge challenge for policymakers. I know, I talk to a lot of MPs who are absolutely sick to the back teeth of change.org and, yeah. um, you know, 38 degrees and advanced mm. petitions, because they just, a very small number of people can create a huge number of noise, and it becomes very difficult to separate out what is 12 people who care incredibly passionately, and what is 10,000 people who care 7 out of 10? You know, still a, a large amount. And there's another problem with those, with those kinds of organisations, although they're, they're great in many ways, and that is that they only seem to have one technique, which is harassing uh, the politicians <laughs> who they feel are doing the wrong things, outing them. And um, for, for all of my professional career, I've advised politicians, and I know one thing for sure about them that if you attempt to publicly humiliate them for something that you think they've done wrong, they're just going to carry on doing it in private and make sure that they're not found out next time. I just think the psychology is very poor. And I, think, I have a lot of sympathy for people who have big, difficult jobs like running countries or running cities. And I think what they need more than anything else is help and support and ideas and collaboration. And I think that the, the way forward for these platforms is to do it that way, to do it in a giving, participatory, helpful way rather than treating them all as if they were the enemy. Well, there's another thing you can only say because you're not a politician. Not all politicians are money-grabbing, you know, bastards, basically. No, indeed. It's, it's now become an almost a taboo thing to say. I have to say that, that, that most of the governments I've advised now over the last 15 or 20 years, the tiniest, tiniest proportion were bad people. They're mostly there with the best possible intentions, doing jobs that are almost impossible to do. Um, I'll take one more question from the back and then one from this side as well. 
there in the front. Uh, thank you. Very, very, very interesting uh, conversation, I have to say. I think being a politician, as, as Charles knows, is a very tough job. Uh, you have to promise people the world other ways, just use the uh, bad use of terminology there, promise them the world other ways they don't vote for you. Um, the, I just wonder whether getting, I think the root cause of that is, is, is education system, which needs a massive makeover to get people thinking much, much farther beyond than the, the end of their street. But that's another question. Now, getting people engaged in these things is, is as we all admit, a very, very tough job. 10% of the world is nowhere near enough, I think, to have the impact. You need to get enormous number of people involved. Now, no one's mentioned the Jeremy Corbyn effect this evening. He seems, by uh, whatever means, and as someone also, one of the Democrat candidates in America, is doing a similar job. He's getting it because he's got a technique whereby he's, he, he somehow persuades people that he's engaging with them, he's listening to them, and he's responding to them. And politicians, I think, have to start doing that big time. Otherwise, you will never get anywhere. So whether you, uh, Simon's idea of the good country can progress by, in a sense, politicians starting to change the way they interact with people. Okay. So um, out of deference to your blood pressure thus far, Charles, I've not mentioned Jeremy Corbyn's name. <laughs> but what the gentleman says is true. During the Labour leadership election, he motivated a huge number of people to join the Labour Party and become interested in politics. Is there something that, that the rest of the party could learn from that and politicians generally could learn from that? Of course. Uh, thank you for caring for my blood pressure. I appreciate it a lot. It doesn't always happen. Um, one preliminary point. I don't think it's promised the world if you're a politician. I think it's promised to tell the truth. Uh, I was a controversial politician in government. Issues like ID cards, counterterrorism legislation, student fees. And in my constituency, I always said, and I hope I carried through, that I would tell the truth about what I thought. And I think if you do do that, people respect that and are ready to work with that in those circumstances. My understanding of the Jeremy Corbyn election was this, that there were many people who were very, very angry, both in the Labour Party and more widely, both about politics, my earlier point about the large numbers of people who are disengaged from politics, but in the case of Labour in particular, the sense that Labour had been an anti rather than an, a pro force in life. So in both 2010 and 2015, we basically said vote Labour because we're not the Conservatives, keep the Conservatives out. We didn't say vote Labour because we've got this or that image uh, of the country that we want to convince you to. When it came to the Labour leadership election, Jeremy was able both to lead that general disaffected group, as others have been able to do, uh, but also to get Labour people as part of that to think we really need a new Labour Party, we need a party which challenges, we need change in the Labour Party. And Andy um, Burnham and Yvette Cooper came across as Brown Miliband uh, continuity candidates, Liz Kendall came across as Blair Kent continu continuity candidate, and Jeremy came across as the change candidate. Now, I would say, and this is where the blood pressure factor comes in, that he should have been the continuity Ben candidate as opposed to the continuity other candidates. But I think what happened was that 60% of the electorate voted for him, which contrasts with the 16.8% who voted for Diane Abbott in London, the 16.2% who voted for Angela Eagle in the deputy leadership election. 
There was about 15 to 20% who voted for what you might call Labour ultra-leftism. There was another 40% who voted for change, who thought Jeremy was their form of change. He came across, as you rightly say, authentically as a genuine guy, people could trust him, and he would be the voice for change for Labour. And they wanted a voice for change for Labour, and they didn't see the other candidates as a voice for change for Labour, so they voted for him. And Jeremy worked with that in his own campaign. He was at pains to say, uh, you're not voting for a particular policy here, you're voting for a change in approach, a debate, a discussion. And people went with that. To give an example, you might disagree, Helen, I don't know. I don't myself think that John McDonnell or Diane Abbott, take two other big figures in that area, if they'd run for the leadership rather than Jeremy, would have been elected leader. I don't think there was a majority for an ultra-left take over the Labour Party. I think there was a majority for a change in Labour, which faced up to the problems we had to deal with. And Jeremy came across as the guy who could do that. Now, I, if it's any help, I believe the change was needed. I don't think we're in the right place. If it's not a help, I personally don't think Jeremy will be that candidate for change. I think actually he's very stuck in his old ways of looking at things and won't be the force. But my, my advice to everybody in the Labour Party who wants to see Labour doing well is to say, take seriously the two-thirds of people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn wanting to see change in the Labour Party to face up to the problems of the future, understand what their motivations were, what they're wanting to see, and try and address that. Because going on as we were was no good. It wasn't any good. It hadn't been any good, in my opinion, for nine or ten years. Uh, and we had to be in a different position. I deeply regret that Jeremy Corbyn was the voice of that change, but I think he became the voice of that change, partly through his authenticity or apparent authenticity as he came forward. And the challenge for Labour is how to hear that message that came and to turn it into a positive direction. I think it's, the jury is very open about how we'll succeed in that area. I hope I've avoided popping my own blood vessel I th I th in no, that approach, but that's my assessment. measured assessment, um, for which I, I think we should be grateful. I think, there is, I think you're, you're very right to say, from my perspective as a political journalist, that another candidate wouldn't have coalesced in the same way. A lot of it was to do with the personal qualities, the humility, the, the humility, niceness. Humility in particular, it's a strong thing. Pol political leaders are genuinely not humble, including myself. If you come across as humble, people uh, want to give you support. But I think the problem with that is that you now see the flip side of that, which is something like the Trident row is a, is a particularly good example. We had a quote from a shadow cabinet minister saying that the only real way out to deal with the fact that the leader is at odds with the, most of the parliamentary party on the issue is to have a free vote. And it'll be the first time you know, there's been a free vote so that the leader can vote against his own party's policy. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to to be a humble leader, because people, to some extent, do want strong leadership. I don't know how you feel about this, this, Simon, but I think that we are still looking for people to follow, to some extent, even if we look to larger organisations. A, a great charismatic figurehead is still important in politics. Maybe. No, you don't sound convinced. Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we have a tendency uh, these days um, in, in Europe um, to elect competent technocrats. Uh, because in many cases the ideological issues seem to be far removed and we don't feel we have the need of leadership, we feel we have the need of good management mm. and in a sense that's a mark of progress I suppose. Um, but I don't think that uh, leadership values are going to go out of fashion anytime soon. It's still something that people recognise and want and vote for when they see it.
To do an advertisement, I've just edited a book on British Labour leadership and also British Conservative leadership about political leadership. I think political leadership is very important, but it's a much more subtle thing. It's not about the leader saying, that's what we want, follow me. It's about working with a team to build a concept of where you go. And if you read the book, which is about all British Labour leaders, you'll see they had different approaches to this. It's very interesting on the renewal of Trident point. When I was still a Member of Parliament in 2009, I voted against the renewal of Trident, which surprised people because I uh, was seen as uh, somebody who was obviously a terrible right-winger in every particular respect. But people tried to reduce the renewal of Trident debate to unilateral nuclear disarmament. I always felt it wasn't necessarily the case to spend billions and millions of pounds renewing Trident and didn't necessarily take you to a position of being unilateral disarmament. Now, we can have a discussion about this, obviously, but I don't think the answer is to have a staged battle between renewal of Trident or non-renewal of Trident, which I think will be very difficult to get anything constructive about, but it's about trying to find a more intelligent approach towards this. I think it's very difficult to argue that renewing Trident is a very intelligent thing to do in the world today. I personally take the view that actually we shouldn't be unilaterally nuclear disarming. I mean, many, many people in the audience who will think we should be unilaterally nuclear disarming, but they're not. The point is, they're not the same thing. Renewing Trident and unilaterally nuclear disarming is not the same thing. But there's no space for that debate in the discussion that's happening now at the moment. It's becoming um, an OK Corral type discussion, which is very negative. And the trick of politics, particularly opposition politics, I think is to try and get away from the OK Corral type uh, face-ups and get towards a more intelligent approach to looking where we are. And I don't at the moment think uh, we're doing, we meaning Labour, are doing that particularly well. I think that's, I mean, we, we spoke to Diane Abbott last week who said, well, we, I don't believe in trying because I think we maybe we could spend more on cyber security, for example, which is, you know, we know that China and Russia and all the other countries have huge battalions of people trying to crack encryption, trying to get into security systems. And if you reduce all of, do you care about defence to that one question, it becomes your, your point again about, you've essentially said migration, good or bad, and the answer is, is ultimately utterly useless. Um, I'll take a question from, um, have you got, oh no, right, you've got the microphone and then, and then you after, okay, you've lost the battle of the microphone, but we will um, ask you a question nonetheless. Yes. I, I just wanted to, um, to ask, I, I have no interest in sport, but I believe that a lot of the world are interested in the Olympics and the World Cup. And I have s never understood why we never have the equivalent in terms of a sort of ideas Olympics as to how to solve many of the world's problems, such as poverty and starvation and war and all the rest of it. Um, I am an internationalist and I actually fully believe in global governance and I believe we need a new world order that starts with children so that children, from the word go, learn that what is important in the world is to make the world better. And I think the common denominator, the lowest common denominator, is to reduce suffering and um, increase the benefit to everybody in the world, but okay. ultimately to reduce suffering and poverty and discrimination. Now, I don't understand why there isn't this... Olympics of ideas and that people who are experts in dealing with um, um, avoiding war or dealing with disparate 
distribution of water or whatever it is, why they do not all come together and the world can watch and listen to them in the same way they do as people competing okay. with other high they can well, jump. We, you get the, you get the picture. That, you could pass the microphone forward to this lady so she can also ask a question. But for a moment, Charles, I thought we were talking about a, a, poli a politics Olympics where you'd all be doing the sort of shot put and things like that. But I'm very good at the shot put. Luckily, less good at sprinting. Luckily, it's more. I mean, uh, I suppose Simon, you you, you, were a, you did a TED talk. I mean, TED is explicitly formed with that idea of you know it's good ideas worth spreading. Are there forums for these kind of big discussions? No, I think this is a beautiful idea. I really do. I, I think I think we should make it happen. Let's make it happen. I think it's great. I mean, what, what's, what's the closest? I think the organisers of the expos would probably claim that that's part of what they have in mind. But expos are funny things. I mean, you're just paying a lot of money to be promoted to by countries. And, but it could be turned into that. Maybe, maybe what we need is a reverse takeover of the expo. I think the Model United Nations movement, which works and gets young people involved in a number of different things, is quite interesting from that point of view. But they're broadly about international diplomatic problem solving rather than what you're talking about, the ideas approach. Um, I think the, the question that has to be answered if you had an Olympics of ideas, which I think is a wonderful thought, is how do you bring practicality into the discussion? Because there is a utopianism about people thinking about ideas. Uh, and the real problem is the practicality of making those utopian ideas actually happen in the way that things go forward. For many years... Uh, Idealists believe that world government, quotes unquote, whether it's the League of Nations, United Nations, whatever, would mean that we inevitably almost got to a process of good discussions and therefore good solutions to these problems. But we actually got stuck in, I don't know, the mid-1950s and the Cold War or whatever, in not being able to make progress on turning ideas into practicalities. I suppose the most recent intergovernmental initiative which was interesting from this point of view was the Millennium Development Goals where there was a serious effort across the world to get, I, I can't remember, was it eight or ten specific aspirations directly affecting children, by the way, many of them, uh, to try and get to a state of affairs where governments made commitments to make that happen. Well, I'm just going to cut you off here, otherwise, because we're going to run out Sorry, of time. Apologies. So I'm just going to ask this woman for her question. Thank you. Um, I have a question about indices and um, their value in shaping or reframing global conversations about something. So, so a metric like the good country, it seems like it's trying to challenge the assumption that economic growth is the purest measure of success for a country. But over the last 20 years or so since Amartya Sen and people like that enter the development realm, there have been a huge push to create metrics which create a more nuanced view of society. So you have the Gini Index, you have the Multidimensional Poverty Index, you have the Happiness Index, you have all these things that are trying to show the huge breadth of human life and human existence. And really, none of them have even made an inroad in shaking the supremacy of GDP as the metric that has traction in the global sphere. And I was wondering how you thought you could really create gravitas behind something because there are plenty of other um, research and reports that are produced on a yearly basis and they never seem to be able to, make, to really challenge GDP, which is just so entrenched in the global psyche as the ultimate measure of success. Um, well... Let, let me have a shot at defending the Good Country Index for a moment. Um, yes, it's absolutely true, of course. There are a large number of, of indices around which try to measure um, 
how well countries are doing. But the big difference, and the reason why I wanted to do the Good Country Index, is because they all still look inwards. They're all still measuring countries as discrete performers. They're just trying to measure that performance in different ways. And I think it's great um, that they're going beyond GDP and they're trying to look at broader measures. Um, and, and, and good for them. I didn't want to do another of those because the last thing I wanted to do was another index that microscopes. I wanted to do one that telescopes and that enables people in a, in a given country to say, what's our impact on the rest of humanity in a very broad sense? So that's why it exists and that's why I still believe that it's a bit different from the other, the other surveys out there. The question about to what extent they achieve any influence, well, I think we just have to be patient. Um, uh, GDP and the, and the dominance of, of, of economics, the notion of, um, of, uh, of, of the dollar as being the only thing that really matters, is um, a very, very seductive idea, a very powerfully, deeply rooted idea. It's been with us for a long time. It's now beginning to be questioned. Um, I think we just have to accept that humanity moves rather slowly and we mustn't be too impatient about it. But it's definitely moving in the right direction. I think the area where we most need to question that actually is in the way that rich countries are expected to help poor countries. That, it seems to me, is one of the most old-fashioned notions, that you've got a line around the, the, the equator above which everybody's rich because they have dollars and below which everybody's poor because they don't have dollars. And making the world a better place is about transferring as many dollars from the top bit to the bottom bit. I mean, the North needs aid just as much as the South does, but just of different kinds, and some of which are more important. But there we go. I don't want to go off on a rant about that. No, I was, I was, I was looking forward to that rant, but I'll another have to day. save it for another day, because for now, um, I know uh, people will want to get home. Um, can I say thank you to my two guests who have been absolutely fantastic, and please put your hands together for them. Thank you.